one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We talk about women and power. We talk about heirs. And graces and the Labour and Tory successions. So some of you will have heard the advert on our podcast for the play Mary Stewart, which is just transferred to the West End. As promised, I took Stephen on a New Statesman podcast school trip last night. Now, theatre people get very cross if you review the production during previews, but I thought it would be a really interesting way to jump off talking about a couple of different things. So one of the things that was interesting about the play... Do they get cross if you review it and you say it was good? Because I liked it. No, they they probably don't, actually. They probably see fit to overlook that. Well, okay. In that case, my review is I liked it. It's going on tour. It's worth a go. It's very long, though, so make sure that you have peed literally as close to sitting down as possible. Yeah, I spent almost the entire interval in the ladies' loo queue, which once paid off, actually. When I went to see the Queen Anne that the RSC did, I got to explain the Stuart succession to a group of American tourists, which is literally my happy place in all of the world. They were really interested to say what I had to say about Sophia, Electress of Hanover. Anyway... Were they interested or polite? No, no, no. They literally, they asked me. I was explaining it to one friend, and then I gathered an appreciative group who really wanted to know why Catholics were excluded from the succession of the British monarchy. Honestly, I, if John could have teleported there, he would have been the happy man alive. But I digress. The reason I thought it was an interesting play, because it, it, when it was on the first time, they were developing it at the time, it was Andrea Ledson versus Theresa May for the Tory leadership. Oh, is that why they've got their nifty haircuts? I don't think that's why they've got their nifty haircuts, but they do. So the, the, the premise of the, Sorry, the kind of... Sorry, uh, this preview rule I've just learned out. Haircuts, which may or may not have been nifty. <laughs> <laughs> so they spin a coin at the start, and one of them calls heads, ironically. And then of the two leads, Juliet Stevenson and Leah Williams, one of them plays Mary, one of them plays Elizabeth, with the idea that you know you could be in the shoes of someone else and fate leads you to one place or another. And also that actually you kind of can't, as a woman, you can't have it all. You can either be the kind of bitch virgin queen, in which case you kind of get respect from men, but at the cost of them sort of also hating you for being frigid, or you can be kind of maternal and sexy at the cost of men, unfortunately, disrespecting you because they think you're a slag. That's not really how the blank verse presents it, but that's my gloss on it. And I think it's really interesting because we now have a situation in Scotland where you have First Minister's questions with Nicola Sturgeon versus the Tory Scottish leader Ruth Davidson. And now we've been talking a little bit about the Labour succession this week. And actually, there is a strong feeling in the Labour Party it should be a woman next time. 
I wouldn't put it past them still to elect a bloke, but that is the kind of where the general mood is. And the names Emily Thornbury, Angela Rayner, and now from the left, Laura Pickock, who's very new, have all kind of come into the frame. So I thought, first of all, let's talk about women and power, Stephen. What do they want? What can be done about it? Well, presumably they want power. So I think the, the interesting thing about the fact that politics, I, yeah, I am just going to nick this phrase from before we went on there, politics now passes the Bechdel test. It's all right. I said it on Women's Hour, so it's out there now. Okay. And then I think there are a couple of interesting trends about that. One is recently, as I think I mentioned last week on the podcast, I went to see some of Britain Thinks's podcasts uh Focus Britain groups. thinks focus groups. We do podcasts. They do pod. They do focus groups. <laughs> no, they oh also God, do podcasts. <laughs> um, and the thing I thought was really interesting about that is how in both the groups they were both very critical, both young and old, about Theresa May. And the thing that they said in both cases is Thatcher wannabe, because people's idea of what a successful woman in wielding power in the United Kingdom is Margaret Thatcher. My suspicion isn't when Angela Merkel does leave the scene, which obviously may be sooner than we think, then she similarly will cast quite a long shadow over what it is to be, over what a successful woman politician should look like. But I think that's also comes back to Elizabeth I as well as a model for female power, because that is someone who surrounded themselves with male courtiers, which is notoriously what Thatcher appointed, I think, one woman to her cabinet in the entire time that she was there, and kind of reveled in this idea that she was sui generis. You know that famous speech that Elizabeth gives, I'm going to say at Tilbury, you know, I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king. She did an explicit thing where she said, yes, I might by accident at birth have been a woman, but I'm not like women, you know, I'm as good as a man. And I think that was very much the kind of Thatcher model of power. And when I talk to Labour women MPs, that's how they feel. They feel there's a really good template for success as a woman in the Tory party, but it comes from saying, I am an exceptional, you know, I'm as good as a, a man, which is less their vision, which is more a socialist vision, which is that we have to bring up all women. So in some ways, they feel that their vision is more threatening to kind of patriarchy in the established order. But so I think one of the interesting things about the fact that you have, and obviously before you had uh, Kezia Dugdale, although obviously people didn't really regard the Labour Party she led as, uh, you know, a, a viable kind of project. But it does mean that you have slight, a, slight, a significantly broader idea of what female leadership looks like, which does mean that it's less constrained, I suspect. So shall we start with the Labour leadership and then go to the Tories next? Yeah. I think because I think the, the, the fascinating thing about the... Labour Party is, although I think it is more likely than not that Jeremy Corbyn will lead Labour into the 2022 election, that is, it is a live possibility that he won't. It is a possibility that certainly some people around him are preparing for, hence this kind of like, I mean, some of the lists of people who've been abandoned successors are flatly wrong. You know, Clive Lewis was never really considered a successor by the leader's office. I think possibly by Clive Lewis. He might. He, and he was considered like a successor by like lots of kind of pro-Corbyn commentators, but that isn't really the same thing. Rebecca Long-Bailey was, I think. Rebecca Long-Bailey was. was. Angela Rayner was considered a Corbynite by a bunch of Corbyn sceptic commentators. So there's this slightly... Who hadn't listened to anything that she'd said. Yeah, there's this slightly disingenuous thing of like a certain type of like political journalist who has not, I I, I think it would be fair to say, approached the Corbyn project in a particularly professional manner, who um, has started by going, oh, she's the Corbynite successor, finally been forced to listen to like you know a speech by Angela Rain and gone like oh yeah she's on the left which is not a Corbynite 
they've abandoned her as a successor. And it's like, no, no, no. Like this narrative existed, you know, it is is solely emanated from you. Something I do think you have to mention when you're talking about both of them, actually. And actually, when we bring Laura Pidcock into that, because she's, so she's the MP for Northwest Durham. She's 31. She was elected the last, um, uh, in 2017 and I think I think her first big major media thing actually was when I think I hosted week in Westminster and I wanted to do a discussion about pe- young people not being able to afford to buy houses and she came on because at the time she didn't have a house she has since bought one leading to a kind of classic Daily Mail hatchet job about the kind of you know MP moans they can't afford a house despite £72,000 salary unfortunately ignoring one of the massive problems of the housing market for young people which is that it's so stacked towards people with existing capital you can have a very high salary but if you don't can't lay your hands on tens of thousands of pounds you can't in a mortgage anyway i thought she was really impressive then but also the thing is crucially she couldn't with her salary buy a house in commuting distance of the place where she you know actually works like you know you mean westminster rather yeah. than northwest durham yeah i mean this thing's just like like uh, you know i'm i'm sure it's a very beautiful house because a 70 grand salary can buy you quite a beautiful house in northwest durham which means you know in the recess and in the three days of the week she's doing her surgeries yeah she's got a great house however Right, like it, it is a bit troubling that even people who earn seventy grand a year, and in the case of like the Labour MP for Northwest Durham, let's face it, if you're a bank, you probably feel confident in betting she will continue to earn seventy grand a year for the foreseeable future. Could not, you know, is unable to to buy a flat in within commuting distance of uh the palace of westminster on her own without having to scare up a fairly large deposit right that is not the sign i would argue of a successful housing market the fact that it happens that she lives somewhere where the kind of because obviously the housing crisis in london is the jobs crisis elsewhere despite the fact she lives in a she represents a constituency which is the other end of it and although yes i continue to find it annoying when mps who do not live in their patches use their constituents as a proxy for like you know, bowing to any number of like bad ideas on the economy or immigration or whatever. But actually, like, I am intensely relaxed with MPs spending most of their working week when Parliament is sitting near Parliament. Oh, yeah. Like, so am I. I just say that as a reference to the fact that she's, I think she's very impressive. She's one of those people who came in, like Jess Phillips at the last election, and you just thought, wow, you are somebody who you can put, you know, who comes in, is incredibly forceful and incredibly articulate at putting your arguments forward, you know. Very different from maybe whether or not you'd succeed in a ministerial brief or succeed as leader, but one of those people who immediately comes in and people go, ooh, hello. But the thing that's interesting is, you know, Jo Swinson did not stand for the Lib Dem leadership, and actually she's currently pregnant with her second child and I'm sure those two decisions were not entirely unlinked Laura is at the start of her 30s that decision is ahead of her whereas Angela Rayner is because she had her kids so young is already grandular as she calls herself she's already grandmother and Emily Thornberry's children are, are, are older which is yeah because I feel like um Angela Rayner's younger children because she had yeah right on her own oh, still smaller than yeah, that they, yeah. but coming up to the age where it's you know I think Still, being a party leader with babies or toddlers is... Inc- I mean, you know, there are people like Harriet Harman who just absolutely bludgeoned through it. You know, she turned up in the Commons in 1982, five months pregnant, as one of only something, you know, crazy small number of MPs and just kind of decided to, that she would just kind of bulldoze her way through. But for lots of other people, those decisions are very hard to make. So what's interesting about where we are with women and politics at the moment is so many of the successful leaders are childless, which is something I wrote about in our cover story a couple of years ago. And other ones of them are coming in, you know, the idea of a trend to slightly older leaders is really advantageous 
advantageous to women. And that's what Baroness Anne Jenkin, the Tory peer who ran and still runs Women to Win with Theresa May, said about getting women in their 50s into Parliament. She's like, well, this is a chance to have a whole new generation who wouldn't have considered these careers in their 30s. They will now consider them in their 50s. So I think that's really kind of important. Tory succession. So this is the other thing that I picked up from Mary Stewart is the intense anxiety of a country with no succession plan. Kick the tires of the conserv- of the Labour candidates in slightly more detail. You can kick all the tires. Because I think the interesting thing is that you know the, the central forecast isn't this won't happen until twenty twenty two anyway, but um or until you know sometime after twenty twenty two. I think so far I would say I think Emily Thornberry of the kind of three people who are being talked about who I would you know, if someone said, who would you bet money on? I'd go, oh, well, you've got a fairly decentest chance of getting it back if you put it on any of Emily Thornberry, Angela Rayner, and Laura Pidcock. And then if you wanted to, like, make a lot of money, but you didn't mind that much about getting the money you were putting down back, you'd bet on John Ashworth as, like, a, like, hilarious left field, like, but semi-plausible, like, yeah, in terms of the the people who have quite long odds at the moment, he's definitely the only one that would Yeah, because be Emily Thornberry, like, when I checked this week, was at six to one, I think, and Angela yeah. ain't about the same. Um, um, so they're, you know, they're, they're kind of solid leaders. Perhaps you're not going to make an enormous amount of money um, on them. But, so the, the thing I think that Angela Rayner is, is doing quite a bad job of is she's kind of somehow managing to run for it to a position, uh, from a position that's actually to her right, at the moment. I think the other problem she's having is she's running for it too, obviously. She's done quite a lot of press. And I guess maybe she just feels she needs to do that initial blitz of press where everyone does the story. But, you know, her personal life story, you know, about the fact that her mum was illiterate, she had her kids very young, and then she's, you know, she really wants to bring a kind of different voice to Parliament. And when everybody's kind of done that, then she feels that she will then have permission to actually kind of talk about policies, right? And we have to get past the biography first. Whereas Emily Thornberry has been in Parliament for a lot longer you know, already kind of has that permission. Yeah. And yeah, the interesting thing is, like, like, obviously, like, lots of people are very excited about Laura Pidcock. However, as with Becky Long-Bailey, it is not entirely clear to me how much that excitement is necessarily shared by the candidate who might want to have been in Parliament for a bit longer. My very strong impression, and indeed what was very clear from the first sort of set of, of polling that YouGov did and was not published, but then obviously we obtained and wrote about on the NS website, was that was taken after the Newsnight hustings at 7pm on BBC One. The average Labour member, it's very important to remember, is is still actually, is actually a lot less politically engaged than the average person who listens to the New Statesman podcast. I just think that people hugely underestimate how powerful a position Emily Thornbury is in with that group for having been someone who like was on TV defending Ed Miliband, was on TV defending uh, Jeremy Corbyn and crucially is like them. She is, you know, like from the South, you know, did not come from a like super privileged background, but has like made something of her herself. Right? I think it's really Which fascinating. Is actually, like, that is the median Labour member is someone in their 50s who like you know, maybe the first in their family to go to university or the first in their family to, you know, get promoted above supervisor level or whatever, now owns their own house and is quite worried about their children's prospects. You've just described, like, the Corbyn coalition as far as his leadership victory. And for lots of reasons, Emily Thornberry is doing the best job of appealing to that group at the moment. But I think it's really fascinating that Tories always will try and attack her by calling her Lady Noogie because her husband is... Oh, it's such a character tell. Sir Christopher Noogie, who's like a high court George judge. It's like George Osborne Gideon. It's just the kind of thing where it's just like, you have outed yourself as a word I cannot use on the NS podcast. It is a bit all Zanu Libor, isn't it? It's like, you think this is clever, but actually this it's is also just, just like significantly dumb. It's just like, people what they want to be called. It's just so unnecessarily yeah, just like... just. 
it, yeah, it's just like the only thing that it well, it's is like revealing about is of the character of the person doing it. Yeah, like, like it's like me on feminist principles, insisting on referring to Teresa Brazier because I don't think that people should take their husbands' names on marriage. That's fine. I can think that. I can choose not to do that in my case. But trying to impose that on everybody else just makes you look like a bit of a tit. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, but that's I, you know that's you can see there the outline of what the Tory hilariously the Tories are going to decide to attack the Labour leader for being too posh, which is you know something that works for them. I don't know if they've necessarily got their. Angela Rayner attack line ready yet because they did try to gently suggest the suggestion that she was really thick and it backfired massively because people went are you just saying that because she's got a northern accent and I think that makes a huge number of the country just go hang on a minute is that the kind of thing that the Tory you know it pokes that button of the is that how the Tory party feel about us they think that we're the kind of great unwashed so I think they would kind of struggle with with that a bit but um, yeah, I just think the question of who the unions swing behind is a really interesting one, and there I would put Emily Thornberry ahead on that measure. Well, this is the other important thing about uh, Laura Pidcock's promotion because she's been sort of. Although my kind of, I, I do think people have kind of uh, not noticed, and actually, the the difficulty for the trade unions uh, with the Collins post Collins review system is they have the only control they have is their ability to encourage MPs to nominate or not nominate certain people. That threshold has already been lowered, and if any, it's definitely not going to go up, right? And actually, so lots of people in the trade unions did a very heroic job of spinning that, oh, we've managed to get our people to vote because they made up a larger proportion of the people voting in the Scottish Labour leadership election. But that's because there are still like 35,000 members or some other like hilariously small pre-Corbyn number of people who are members in the Scottish Labour Party. The reason why the trade union uh, proportion was higher is ultimately if you can successfully get like everyone who's a, a rep or, you know, uh, who works for Unite in a political sense to vote in the Scottish Labour leadership election, well, well done. You've you've successfully increased the proportion of trade union affiliates. However, the actual raw number is still derisory, um, which means that beyond it meaning that you don't have to worry about hiring your staff, you know, paying your, you know, the money for your staff comes from. Because the Unite for Jeremy did, I mean, they gave him a lot of money for that leadership campaign. And it's like office space and like just all of that kind of stuff does make your life a lot easier. But, but crucially, if you are a viable candidate for uh, an internal party election, you do not lack for volunteers. You do not lack for like space given to you for free by volunteers, right? So actually, even that advantage, although it is like good for meaning that, you know, the campaign manager doesn't continually have to sit there going, oh, God, how can I, you know, make this ad up? What about my Facebook videos? You know, what about my targeted ads? Right. Although the union money is really important and crucial to that kind of thing. If the Labour Party basically ends up with a situation where it is kind of having a proper primary by default, because, you know, let's say the Labour Party just keeps growing at every election because it continues to have, like, the registered supporter scheme at a reasonably low rate. And I think after the hilarious failure to not have to kill it by raising it, that it feels more like... Well, the counterpoint to that is that the Labour Party until two years ago had enormous cash problems, huge cash problems. And now it is, it, you know, they, we like Scrooge McDuck over there. They could kind of go down a slide into a pile of pan coins. Yeah. But so let's say Labour kind of keeps increasing the size of its electorate, then, which is why I'm, I think you told there are two groups in the party who I think should embrace primaries for tactical, also I think primaries are good, but for tactical, one is the right of the party because they need to get better they if do. they want to win. Yeah, they just, yeah, it would, it would be an incentive to them to improve. But the other group are actually the trade unions, because in the reality is if Labour had primaries, 
you can then like go, yeah, you can't take money from like KPMG, X, Y, and Z, right? You then can restrict who pays for it. And then suddenly the fact that they are the deepest pockets in the movement does slightly give them a measure of control over the outcome than they at present do not have. So I think like the endorsement of the unions is nice to have, I guess, but I just don't think it actually matters all that much. I mean, as indeed Jeremy Corbyn's 2015 election campaign, where yes, he did got the endorsements of a reasonable number of trade unions, but they all very much had to be dragged there by uh, events, right? That that none of the big general secretaries, with the partial exception of Dave Ward at the CWU, who obviously changed over midway through that leadership election. Yeah, I mean, the general secretary himself was elected during, at the same time. Um, uh, started that election thinking they were going to back Jeremy Corbyn. So it, it, it doesn't matter. That's interesting. Well, the other thing, I guess, the big learning from Mary Stewart is this idea about, yeah, about how succession is, is kind of unpredictable and also something that makes people very nervous. So in the play, obviously, it's about the fact that Elizabeth's a Protestant, Mary's a Catholic. No one, I don't think anyone would have predicted in sort of 1575 that what was actually going to happen was that Elizabeth was going to live for another 30 years and that it would then go to James I of England and VI of Scotland. And so, yeah, not to contradict everything that's gone before, but it is now entirely possible that it will be someone... I think you mentioned someone like Dan Carden, you know, the MP for Liverpool, Walton, who came in strongly backed by Unite. Um, and has kind of kept a low profile. He's now a Minister for State in the International Development. International And I think, like, you know... It could it, just be someone we haven't even yeah, crossed it, our radio. If you presume that Jeremy Corbyn is going to stay on for a long time, like Elizabeth I, he's just going to go on and on. Yeah, and the thing is, I think then people are on the whole underrating the likelihood that, that Corbyn will fight the next election. Uh, but, you know, then someone like Dan Carden, who are kind of in the line, I think we ended up cutting from my column this week, uh, then it's hard to sort of think of an example of someone who coming into the into Westminster full stop with such a big pre-existing reputation in their party since Clegg uh, Miliband and Balls came in in 2005. And of course, two years later, Clegg was leader of his party. The Eds were in the cabinet and three years later, Ed Miliband was leader. So you would, so there are people like that who have, and he has done the very sensible thing of a big name arriving in parliament, which is he hasn't irritated any of the sort of grey beards by making a name for himself and has just quietly and diligently got on with the job of being an MP. And so he's someone who, who, you know, could yet surprise people. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On the Tory side... Well, that's what I think. I think the Tory succession is, is in a way more interesting because if you think about what the kind of optics of the Labour succession it will be, it will be somebody who promises essentially to the membership not a counter-revolution, right? That's my very strong feeling. If something happened and actually, you know, 
events really changed, Corbyn was massively wiped out in the next election, or if he became prime minister and it all went appallingly wrong, then you would and then expect the pendulum to swing back. But I, you know, if if it's a leadership election in the kind of current mood, I would expect someone to run as kind of I'm guarantor of the project. I'm going to keep going. The 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 interesting thing is is bizarrely, I think the next Labour leadership election, if it doesn't happen after, well. So let's say there are three paths to a leadership election, which you've sort of outlined well. Corbyn is prime minister and it ends in tears. Uh, Corbyn is prime four, actually. Corbyn is prime minister and steps down after two years and it's hugely successful. Um, and then Corbyn steps down before the election. And then, you know, like something happens to Corbyn and he has to stand down for you know health reasons. Now, in three out of those four things, all of the can- candidates will run on a, I am, I am like Corbyn Mark II. But I'm more electable. Weirdly, it will, it, yeah. So I'm not more electable than Corbyn, but more electable than the other flavours of Corbyn on offer. And I think, in some ways, yes, I'm will, your best chance of a Corbyn-style government. It is will the kind of probably promise. be quite a maybe it will be personal in a nasty way. But I actually, I suspect it possibly will become quite uh, acrimonious because you will have um, at least three candidates who will not be running on policy platforms and are that divergent from one another. You will, and so there will partly be a kind of incentive to like, you know, like be like that one's the Tory, but there will also be an incentive to go like, yeah, but like, come on, obviously, like me plus Corbynism is electoral success. Yeah. yeah. Them plus Corbynism, well, that would be a disaster. Uh, Rather than being like, I think we've got very different approaches to schools and the NHS. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the Tories are in a different place, right? Nobody wants continuity May. That's I mean, not Theresa May does. Yeah, okay. With the exception of Theresa May and you know Philip May and some people around Theresa May, that's not how you you don't run as the guarantor of the May project because the May project so far has been one quite good speech outside Downing Street and then losing an election you didn't have to call. Yeah, still funny. Um, and also, so yeah, the, the Tory leadership election is just a lot more interesting for exactly that reason, but also because, and something I think that not enough people have clocked, there will be loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads. And loads of candidates. Is this the sort of on the basis in the same way that Syed Javid and Stephen Crabb ran last time? And I kind of we know we're not going to win this, but we want to make sure that we're out there. All the way that Liam Fox ran to be like, I just want to remind you, I have got a faction of twelve MPs, you know, that, that who bend to my whim improbably. So there will be there will be someone from you know currently in the wilderness who runs as a kind of like, hey, I'm still relevant. Oh, and obviously, this thing is not. Jacob rees I would say, would is. Don't you well, think he's, he's kind he's of just going to run? He ruled himself out, but I. But kind Michael Gove explicitly ruled himself out. It just means nothing. Um, but yeah, so there'll be someone. So yeah, there'll be there will be various candidates who run to place, as it were. Yeah, just just to kind of go like, hey guys, I'm still here. There will be some people from the cabinet who will run in a kind of. If I'm a candidate and I do well, I can't be sacked because the assumption will be that the the new leader, whoever they are, does a fairly big reshuffle there will be some people who run to win there will be some people who run for you know Favours. various facts yeah there will just there, there and there are i mean in an odd way i mean obviously they can't all run but it's you know kind of one of those quite fun sort of like collective action problems right if you went through every single member of the cabinet the tactical argument why they personally should mount a run is really strong in every single case, and that holds true for quite a large sort of substrata of the of of the minister of state level. Now, obviously, not every cabinet minister, and not every minister of state, and not every like backbencher or select committee chair with a high opinion of themselves will run. However, I think it is quite likely that at least three of those three people from each of those categories I listed will end up making some form of bid. 
it will be quite a crowded field. So it also... I love that, though. I love that because that's when mad stuff happens and just someone kind of completely comes... You just don't expect... I, I think it's... Also, I think that's a really... I think that would be an incredibly healthy thing from the Tory party, which just seems to be having a kind of complete nervous breakdown. Like, it does need to do a proper accounting of what went wrong. But, you know, I mentioned this about the sort of... I, I, I went slightly further back in history and said, you know, of the NEC elections. So John Landsman and the Momentum Slate did really well. They've now replaced... Um, and Black, a swing voter with Christine Shawcroft and the Dis- uh, Disputes Resolution Committee chair. So, you know, that is now a, a firmly pro-Corbyn majority on the on the NEC. So Corbyn has now great consolidated his party party power. However, he does have what I would call the kind of Henry VIII problem, which is he does have no obvious heir. Like there is no one that is anointed by him. There are lots of people who have been pushed by various factions. But that also raises the question about whether or not the anointed successor is even a, 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 a is there is there any point doing that as a prime minister? You know, David Cameron firmly believed that George Osborne was going to guarantee his project. Tony Blair sort of knew, even though he maybe wasn't too happy about it, that that Brown would carry on some of the you know some of the big goals about child poverty and things like that. Some of the new Labour. Oh, like the Blairite Brown, I think, was like mainly like the vanity of small differences and um, the euro. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like you know, go unpicking everything that Chris Grayling did at the Ministry of Justice, right? It was a, it was some, some big, you know, there were a couple of issues that they really disagreed on. But actually, can you ever have a can you ever have a succession that is handed over? I mean, I, I, the other classic example being Hillary Clinton running as third term Obama and her really having support from a very popular president, and it's still not really being enough. So the fascinating thing about the history of political parties is, in general the succession does not work out. It does, obviously, in the States, but when you have a vice president, it's quite different. And obviously, the history of vice presidents successfully running after two terms is, again, not great. You know, but the weird thing in UK politics is, weirdly, with the exception of Thatcher and Major, where she he happens to be her designated successor, you know, that month, but she kind of had gone through so many. But the music stopped, yeah. Probably, you know, he, and she then turned out she wasn't happy with that designated successor either. In an odd way, the, the reason why it's good to have one is it prevents people freaking out, right? Well, that, but then again, that takes you back to Elizabeth I, right? Yeah. Is that you might think, any, you know, what is you, what people want, or Henry VIII, you know, what people want is some guarantee that, you know, from the veterinary line from the Terry Pratchett books, what most people want is a guarantee that tomorrow will be mostly the same as today. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's an, in an odd way, the, the thing that the idea that Osborne was Cameron's uh, preferred heir kind of gave them throughout the whole project was um, this sense of, oh, okay, there's been a reshuffle, oh, Oh, and the the way to do well is to be in with Osborne because Cameron wins Osborne. And so it, it kind of gave, you know, every MPs a sense of like parameters. So it gave them a sense of stability. And that made the government's life slightly easier than it otherwise would have been. And also it felt a more stable government. When we were talking last week about the reshuffle and it's notable how many people stayed in post much longer under Cameron. You know, he was much... David Liddington, I think, was Europe minister for almost the entire time. Yeah, Cameron didn't really like reshuffles. Um, I think this is the other thing is that one of the most effective ways to get your way if you're a party leader is is the idea of revenge, right? Not necessarily that you will do it, but then either you or someone who broadly shares your interests will be around to continue to take revenge. One of May's many difficulties is the idea that like making yourself an enemy for life in Theresa May is a problem for you just doesn't hold water in the conservative party now obviously if she had a designated successor that successor if anything would have a harder job becoming leader you know one of the main 
difficulties for Gavin Williamson is the perception and is growing that he is Theresa May's last Horcrux. You finally got to use that on the podcast. Finally. <laughs> How many people have I heard you describe as someone's last Horcrux over the last couple of years? That's brilliant. In many ways, that analogy is... is... <laughs> it's your last Horcrux. Um, yes, that's true. But yeah, there are, I mean, there are other problems with Gavin Williamson as well, not least the fact that everyone in the Tory party seems to wildly dislike him. I mean, that he that guy needs to go on a charm offensive. This is the problem. You, I keep kind of collecting anecdotes of the kind you can't use because it would be obvious who they came from. Uh, but obviously the... the the commonality is I now have like a hundred like very personal anecdotes of just like they needed this thing which really annoyed me. But that's the problem with coming up through the whips office as well. Contra um, House of Cards, it's actually although you've got loads of dirt on people, you've also up, you know often personally upset them or screwed them over in some way or strong armed them. So it is tough. But also he does so far seem to have leaned into that persona by getting a tarantula called Cronus. I mean that's not the actions of someone who wants to soften. It's a bit like being a fresher who decides their personality isn't they've got a hat isn't it it is a bit like it is a bit do you know what it's really redolent of actually it's redolent of Theresa may and the leopard skin shoes um and those that those were her personality for a, like a decade um well that's a sad and depressing note to um but we give people some good betting advice at least or maybe as it will turn out bad betting advice You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. And you can find out more and links to all the things we talked about in the show at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. 